Good morning. I grew up in Ridgewood and had a pretty idyllic childhood. My older brother and I had parents who loved us, made time for us, gave us everything we needed. And they were also Christians, and our home, re- home life reflected that. We prayed, read the Bible, had times of family worship, and attended a large Korean church in Queens, New York. My father was a well-respected elder, and my mother played the organ, so we never missed church and often spent the entire day there. Throughout our childhoods, my brother and I were doted on by the adults at church for being good Christian kids. But being well-churched and being raised in a Christian home means nothing if you don't really see yourself as a sinner needing God's grace. For me, being a Christian meant behaving well and listening to your parents. It meant missing Sunday birthday parties to go to church instead. It meant carrying a Bible and knowing verses like John 3.16. The problem was that I didn't really understand grace, and I certainly didn't feel like I needed it. It was simply obedience versus sin, and Christians didn't sin. They obeyed. All the love and praise that I received from my parents and folks from church affirmed that I was doing everything right. And if life had chucked along nicely from that point on, nothing would have challenged my view of how things should be. But there were problems, and when they came, this version of Christianity didn't make sense anymore. When I was in third grade, my parents began experiencing pressures at home and in their marriage. There were money problems and in-law problems, and our home life suddenly became less stable. My father, who would leave for work every day saying, walk with the king, was now also a father who would fly into a rage over any small thing. And his rage was terrifying. On numerous occasions, plates were thrown, chairs broken, furniture destroyed, and sometimes worse. As I got older, I continued to experience fear and anxiety over what was going on. But alongside that was a growing anger and resentment. It didn't make sense to me that a person could behave this way at home, but then on Sundays, get up in front of a full congregation and pray tearfully about glorifying God. I began to resent my father for being such a hypocrite, for my mother um, in her part in it, and also the church for being so blind to what really goes on in people's lives, for almost encouraging the facade. Ironically, I was okay with the way people saw me as the perfect daughter, always doing what was right and never causing trouble. I even believed it myself and thought that I was deserving of every compliment that I received. All the while, I was harboring so much anger, contempt, and self-righteousness, and I began to question God, too. Why would he do this to our family? Why would he allow such, why would he allow such discord and heartbreak? And why wouldn't he answer my prayers? By the time I was in high school, we had gone through a church split, which resulted in us moving to a small church in New Jersey of about 30 people. I hated church. I hated watching my mother smile and act like all was well when clearly was not. I hated how everyone thought our family was so wonderful and how they revered my father as an elder. It felt like such a show. And yet I had no awareness of my own falseness because I was completely blind to the sin that was festering in my heart. I knew the message of the gospel, but I still didn't feel like I needed it. I didn't go to parties. I didn't get drunk or do drugs or cheat on tests or break the rules. I called myself a sinner, but was I really? There were far worse people out there than me. Now, I have to explain what my life was like as I got ready to apply for college so that you understand why the outcome was so shocking to me. I had taken all honors in AP classes. My GPA was well above a 4.0 and I was ranked 8th in my class of over 400. I had participated in prestigious regional and all-state choirs, volunteered regularly at Valley Hospital, and played three varsity sports throughout most of high school, eventually becoming captain on all three teams. 
And although I was quite bitter at my church, I was fully prepared to use it to my advantage on college essays and interviews. I was not worried. Now, I I confidently applied to every Ivy League school. There was a family that I regularly babysat for. The parents were alumni and absolutely in love with Boston College, so I applied there too. There was no way I actually thought I was going there, but I didn't want to hurt their feelings, and that was the only reason why I applied. That spring, I received rejection letters from every single school I applied to, except for Boston College. I was dumbfounded and, of course, very angry. So I entered BC in the fall of 98, and I clearly remember thinking, this was all for nothing. I worked so hard for nothing, and I did everything right, followed all the rules, went to church, and stayed out of trouble, and all of it was for nothing. All of my friends were off to Princeton and Yale, and here I was at a school that I believed was beneath me. I was bitter, and from that point on, I was going to do whatever I wanted, and the one thing that I did not want to do anymore was go to church. God hadn't really done anything for me, and the life of Christianity that my parents had tried to instill in me was such a sham. So I was done, but God had plans for me. That Saturday night, I was alone in the dormitory bathroom washing up. The girl from across the hall came in. She was Korean. In high school, I had a lot of friends, but none of them were Korean because the few Koreans at my school were scary. I called them the Korean posse. (laughs) They weren't the shy, smart orchestra-playing Koreans, they were, they were the black leather-wearing, beeper-toting, Korean-only-speaking, combat boot-wearing Koreans who hung out in the library like a gang. Uh, I fearfully avoided them and looked down on them at the same time. This girl in my dorm was like the posse, except she spoke English. <laughs> and though I had passed her a dozen times, she had never smiled, spoken, or even acknowledged me before. There were 12 empty sinks available in that bathroom, but she walked past all of them and put her caddy down at a sink near mine. Then, as she took out her toothbrush, she turned to me and said, A bunch of us are going to church tomorrow at 9. You should come. (laughs) This girl was going to church. I was caught completely off guard, and she did not sound like she was asking me, so I said, Okay, and I left. (laughs) The next morning at 9 a.m., she and three others were waiting for me, The whole thing seemed so ridiculous, and yet, for some reason, I went along with it. There we were, the four of of us, I'm sorry, the four of them, dressed like gangsters, all in black, and me in my full-length rayon floral sundress, walking across the entire length of the campus to go to church, when just a few days earlier, I had declared that I would never go to church again. The van picked us up and took us to a church in Newton. It was a pretty stone building, and there were college students from all around, BU, Wellesley, Brandeis, Tufts. I walked in and took a seat next to a sophomore from MIT. She was very nice, and after quick introductions, she turned back to what she had been doing before I sat down. She was writing a check. It was her tithe, and that completely blew my mind. I had literally received a $1 bill from my mother every Sunday for offering, even in high school, and here was someone pretty much my age offering something substantial enough to write a check because she wanted to. There was a buzz in the air as people hugged and greeted each other after the long summer break, and I was struck by how happy and excited everyone was. These people all wanted to be here, and there was something about all of it that felt different than any other time that I had ever been to church before. The room was filled by the time worship began, and that day something happened. God had knocked me off my pedestal and given me no choice but to come to Boston, 
He had sent a most unexpected person to invite me to church, where he gave me what I never knew I even needed through this body of believers. During the very first song, the sound of the voices that filled the room swelled like a wave and completely consumed me. There are no words to describe it, but looking back, I know it was the Holy Spirit. Something inside me changed that day. I can still remember the song they were singing, and I can still hear the voice, the sound of it. It was Hosea 6.3. So let us know, so let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the sun, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. I had never experienced worship like that before. God opened up something in me that day, and for the first time in my life, I felt his presence. I don't know exactly when I actually received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but I can tell you it was sometime that year, starting with that moment, as little by little, God recaptured me. I went back to church every Sunday and after that and began attending Friday night Bible studies. Everything I had learned in the past finally began to mean something to me. I experienced much joy that year, but there were also some very tough moments because I was finally realizing what it meant to be a sinner in need of God's grace. As the gospel became clear to me and as I began to truly understand what Jesus had done on the cross, I also began to see myself clearly for the first time. All the pride, the self-righteousness, the anger. It was devastating to see the truth about who I was. But that is amazing grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't deserve it, and yet he chose to call me out of darkness into his light. That year, and for many years after, God gave me a church family to come alongside me, pray with me, point me to Christ in the scriptures, and to give me a taste of heaven in the fellowship of his people, which did eventually include the Korean Posse. I began to understand that being a Christian was not about being perfect, worthy, or good. It was about loving and living for Christ, who covers me in his perfect obedience, his righteousness. So that is my grace story. Though I did not see God, he was there, lovingly working out his plan for me in ways that I could not have planned or imagined for myself. And just when I was ready to turn away, he swept me up. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Since then, the message of the gospel has changed me and continues to change me still. It has redeemed my view of my parents as sinners saved by grace, parents who are by no means perfect because none of us are, but who struggled, who were struggling and striving in their own way to love the Lord and show him to me. They had moments of great failure, um, sorry, but God's grace was greater, which is also good news for me too. Thank God my children's salvation does not depend on my perfection in parenting. It has redeemed my view of the church and what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ, to be real with each other, struggling with each other, praying for each other, and growing in faith together. And the gospel continues to work in me, exposing and examining areas of my life that I have yet to give wholeheartedly to the Lord. I am not perfect. I never was, and I never will be on this side of heaven. But I have Christ as my Lord and my Savior, and he is all that I need. Thank you. pray. Lord, you have done this. You've rescued a girl from church. You've drawn her into a relationship of love with you. And you've given her courage to look back on some difficult stretches of life and share it 
to first to honor you, and then secondly to offer her story in service to others. So use it, Lord. Use this to draw other people out of mere religion and into salvation. Use grace's grace story to give some hope to tear down the facade to cause resentment and bitterness to die down and replace it, Lord, with your tender mercy. Thank you, Lord, for grace, for what you've done in her life for this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You people are so interesting. This is uh, what a privilege it is that I have to enter into so many of your stories over these years. And uh, as we continue to remind you, each of you has a story. Uh, Each of you uh, is being worked on by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that awakened grace that morning she showed up at church and things were different. And uh, it will be our privilege to walk with you and pray with you and share uh, your story one day, uh, maybe not up here, uh, maybe in, uh, in a dining room over dinner, maybe in a coffee shop with one another, but you each have a story, and uh, uh, we look forward to hearing it one day. I wonder how many of you here this morning would echo Grace's words and thoughts from her high school years, whether you're 66 or 36 or 16 years old. I wonder if you would say, I'm tired of religion. I'm frustrated by hypocrisy. I am worn down by the messiness of life, and I am done. I wonder how many of you would say, I'm a pretty good person. I'm actually not the problem here. Wherever here is, at work, at home, in your friendships, maybe you're surprised especially that someone who grew up in church, someone whose father was an elder, someone who never missed an event, a retreat, a Sunday school, a youth group gathering, would say that she didn't become a Christian until the age of 18 when she went away to college. I wonder if you'd even find it that much more surprising that a very good person would say that her spiritual conversion happened only when she began to more fully realize the depth of her sinful self-righteousness. Jesus has something to say about this picture. In the parable that is often called the parable of the prodigal son, in Luke chapter 15, the parable is often called that because it has an emphasis on the younger son who asks for his share of the inheritance while the father is still alive. It was incredibly rude for him to say, uh, he, um, Chris, not yet, um, just to hold off on that uh, verse. Incredibly rude for the, the younger son to say to the father, I wish you were dead so I could have my money now. And then went off and wasted it all on wild living. And then crawled back home begging because he couldn't even pay for food to survive. But there's another son 
And the focus of the parable not only turns to him, but ends on him. And he's the elder brother. When the father forgives the younger son and welcomes him home and throws a uh, a lavish party for the younger son, the elder brother is furious. Why? Because he was the good son. He was the one who deserved all of the blessing, all of the accolades, all of the recognition. Listen to grace again. Ironically, I was okay with the way people saw me as the perfect daughter, always doing what was right, never causing any trouble. I even believed it myself that I was deserving of every compliment I received, all the while I was harboring so much anger, contempt, and self-righteousness. Now listen to Luke 15, verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Obviously, you're going to contextualize getting a goat to what you would expect as the good son or daughter today. Um, But he was furious. He didn't get recognition. Just before this parable, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had accused Jesus of hanging out with sinners. Their attitude was, you hang out with the bad crowd and therefore there must be something wrong with you. There must be a seed of badness in you. There must be something that you enjoy uh, in, in hanging out with the wrong crowd. Jesus didn't answer their accusation. Instead, he told three stories. The first story was um, of the, the shepherd chasing after the one lost sheep, leaving the 99 behind. The second story just like it, was the story of a widow who rejoiced with her neighbors after finding her one lost coin. And both of those, Jesus said, were pictures of heaven and the angels rejoicing when one single sinner repents. Explaining why he hangs out with this crowd in order to woo them back to the Lord, in order to rescue them. And then he tells this third story, the parable of the two sons. And it was basically a rebuke to these self-righteous, religiously cleaned up people. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, I'm not as concerned with immoral outsiders as I am concerned with moral insiders. And one of the things we need to realize from Jesus is he's suggesting at least that the more spiritually dangerous place to be is right here in church, right where grace was, age zero through 18, safely tucked away in a Bible-believing church, safely ushered into every kind of church event there ever was held, expected to be there, And that's a spiritually dangerous place to be if if your sense of worth in the eyes of God is how good you are. It's spiritually dangerous to be a moral insider. Jesus was not as concerned with the immoral 
outsiders, even though he was hanging out with them and absolutely ministering to them. Grace came to realize that her biggest problem was not the church. It wasn't her parents. It wasn't the combat boot-wearing gangsta posse girl group. Her greatest problem was herself. Her moral indignation at others' failures, which blinded her to her own proud, self-righteous, resentful heart. That took a lot of courage for her to share that, didn't it? She said, I had no awareness of my own falseness because I was completely blind to the sin that was festering in my heart. Her resentment of family and church fed right into her reaction to the college rejections. I clearly remember thinking, this was all for nothing. I worked so hard and did everything right. I followed the rules. I went to church. I stayed out of trouble all for nothing. That's exactly the elder brother attitude. I slaved away, and look what I got for it. That's a description of the psalmist Asaph, who wrote Psalm 73 and included this verse right smack dab in the middle of the psalm before it turns to a different uh, direction. Asaph said, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. God, I have been a good person, and look where it's gotten me. C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He must have, the Lord must have put this on both of our hearts. Uh, Donald using a quote in the Reflections. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Implication being, when you try very hard to be good, you realize how bad you are at trying to be good. You realize how easy it is to fail. Gospel grace went to work through the most unlikely of means. A college she didn't want to go to. A group of peers she would never choose to hang out with. Going to church, which she had decided she was done with. And then, quote, as the gospel became clearer to me and as I began to truly understand what Jesus had done on the cross, I also began to see myself clearly for the first time. All the pride, the self-righteousness, the anger, it was devastating to see the truth about who I was, but that's amazing grace. A career church girl got saved at age 18. God gave her spiritual eyesight to see what Jesus had really done for her and why he had gone to the cross for her. That gospel clarity involved, as it always does, a greater depth of understanding of her own sinful heart. And it's not a surprise. If, if there is a... Uh, a, a formula, if there's a prediction, if, if there's a strong correlation it, when it comes to following after Christ and experiencing spiritual growth, it always, when it's genuine, when it's of the Holy Spirit, it always involves a deeper understanding of your own sin. And the flip side of the coin, we, we could say is, you can't grow spiritually unless you come to a deeper understanding of your sin and then you turn away from it which is the biblical word repentance. C.S. Lewis again, here comes the catch. Only a bad person needs to repent. 
Only a good person can repent perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need it, and the less you can do it. The only person who could do it perfectly would be a perfect person, and he would not need it. There's the conundrum we're in. We can't save ourselves. Repentance, this is important to understand, and this is where Lewis continues to go in mere Christianity. Repentance is not God's condition for taking you back. He wasn't sitting around waiting for Grace Lee, age 18, to figure out that she needed to say no to her sin and clean up her act, and then he would receive her back. Absolutely the opposite. If God had sat back and watched Grace's life, who knows where it would have gone in a godless, self-reliant direction, crash and burn. No, repentance, biblically speaking, simply describes what that movement back towards God actually looks like. Spiritual growth necessarily involves turning away from sin and seeing your own heart. As God wooed her back to himself, part of that process looked like showing Grace who she really was, not as good as she thought she was. I gave this title, uh, gave this testimony plus devotional the title, Losing My Religion. Some of you who are around my age would remember that REM song from 1991, and I would suggest that's what each of us needs to do. Turn away from mere religion. Reject leaning on ourselves, our so-called goodness to earn the favor of God. And by the way, uh, I, I looked it up this week. That's, that's not what uh, Michael Stipe meant when he wrote those lyrics. Losing my religion apparently is a southernism. Uh, it means losing your temper or getting to the end of your rope. David, you know this? <laughs> But actually, that still fits Grace's story, and I'd suggest fits a lot of our stories uh, at the same time. Getting mad at God and others when life doesn't work out according to our plans. Ready to give up at the end of your rope when faith seems like a dead end. But when you hit empty, rock bottom, that's so often precisely when God fills you up. What is a healthy, good, empty? It's a giving up on self-reliance. It is a setting aside of pride and self-righteousness and me religion, and it is a trusting in Jesus, actual perfect righteousness, and substitute death in your place, which then gives you what your heart craves, absolute approval, perfect status, intimate acceptance, freedom through the forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel of grace. Let's pray. Lord, you did this work in our sister's life. You've done this work in many of our lives, although it looks different. We pray that not only would that spread from this community of flawed dysfunctional yet redeemed sinners, uh, Lord, that you would rescue others. And we pray at the same time that you would cause this gospel of grace that 
alone gives hope, alone heals, alone renews, that you would work it more deeply into the lives of those who do know you as followers of Christ, as your sons and daughters. Let us be reminded that we never grow out of these foundational, simple truths about who we are as sinners and that all we need is found through faith in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.